Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the provinces move into another stay-at-home order. Officials say that phase two of the vaccine rollout has also changed priorities with hot spots and teachers at the front lines. Are we finally heading in the right direction? Small business already devastated from the last two lockdowns, and the ones who are left may not survive this third one. Do they have the support they need to keep them alive? And criminal lawyer Andrew Fergiali joins us with the latest update on the Derek Chauvin trial. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Ontario is in lockdown. No, no, this is not a replay of a show from a couple of months ago. This is going on. It's a replay of a a Doug Ford announcement from a few months ago. Uh, But uh, the announcement yesterday, of course, uh, that Ontario has moved into what they call lockdown once again to try to stop the spread of the uh, the variants, especially of this virus. And it's the third uh, such state of emergency in the last little while. Global's Brianna Carnegie has the details. Premier Doug Ford is stressing the need to limit mobility and get vaccines into arms. On the advice of the Chief Medical Officer of Health, I'm declaring a state of emergency. His government is restricting most non-essential retail businesses to curbside pickup or delivery. Big box stores, too, will be limited to only sell essential items. I know this is tough on businesses. But I promise we will continue to have your backs. Enforcement will be ramped up and rapid testing will be deployed in key sectors. Schools are to remain open, but only in areas permitted by local medical officers of health. Experts have been calling for many of these actions, including Toronto doctor Michael Warner, who says he's pleased with the government's pivot and is looking forward to details on how it will be delivered without delay. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. Uh, a lot of criticism, uh, a few pats on the back, I guess, for the move that uh, the Ford government made about this yesterday. So what is the impact going to be? And this is actually going to get the job done to try to, to beat this curve down. Uh, we're heading into summer weather. It's nicer weather. We want to be outdoors more. Uh, we want to be out with other people. And, uh, well, we're being told, no, it's going to be at least another four weeks before that can happen. Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Timothy Sly. Uh, Dr. Sly is an epidemiologist and professor emeritus in the School of Population and Public Health with Ryerson University. Uh, Doctor, so good to have you back in the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Pleased to be here, Bill. Let me ask you about timing on this. And, and uh, look at the numbers here. And we talked to healthcare officials about the, the impact this is having on, on ERs, especially, and of course, and on ICU units. Uh, isn't this something the province and, and the premier should have done three months ago when, when his panel of experts suggested that's what had to be done? Oh, my goodness. It's good to hear you say that. Absolutely. No question at all. Most people have been saying that this should have been happening uh, uh, actually yeah, months ago. I think there's a better word than weeks. Uh, much of this could have been avoided. We, we couldn't have predicted the, uh, the impact of these variants, which are particularly nasty, but some of the defense against the variants could well have been brought in uh, ages ago. Uh, and I mean, I, I'm just basing this on conversations I've had with a number of your colleagues uh, since then. And I, look at I, I'm, I'm, you know, working from home. I have been since March of last year, and I'm getting frustrated by this, and I'm getting frustrated by the restrictions. And when they shut things down around Christmas in the beginning of the new year, yeah, it bugged me too. But uh, the experts and many of your colleagues uh, were advising uh, the government at the time. I know this thing stinks, but if you just do this, a, a good hard lockdown for maybe three weeks, they said, uh, you got a chance to make sure this thing doesn't spread like wildfire. And he ignored that advice. And he, as a matter of fact, he went down the other road and started reopening. Oh, absolutely. I'm a student of the old SARS-1 outbreak. You may remember ah, that, yes. 2003. And reading the uh, Dutch Justice Campbell's report on that and written in 2006, he was saying, uh, whatever you do, if Ontario has another health crisis in the future, let's not make these seven horrible mistakes again. And you know, if you go down that list, we've made just about every one of those mistakes again. Uh, yeah, that, that, that's, that's the real problem. The, uh, the what we have, do see some good news here. I mean, we're sick, sick and tired of talking about the bad news. There's so much bad news. About the stuff, we've got good stuff happening here. We've, I see, for example, instead of making people get out to the six or nine vaccination centers in convention centers and so on, at least now we're bringing vaccination to the neighborhoods that really need them in local, local you know, fire holes and churches and, and places mm-hmm. like that, and mobile clinics. That's excellent stuff. That should have happened a long time ago. In terms of vaccination, we're, we're moving up in the numbers, but we're still down way down the list of the, of the countries. I think uh, Uruguay is, 
is better than us. Serbia is better than us. Chile is doing better in terms of vaccination. We've got about 16% of our people have got at least one vaccine shot out there. Israel is 62. United Kingdom is 48. Even the United States is 23%. You know, they were the raging dumpster fire, if you remember, at about this time last year. And yet they're doing far better than we are in terms of the proportion vaccinated. And, and th- th- I want to talk about the efficacy of this, because I know the premier, even yesterday during his announcement, uh, once again was chastising the federal government and saying, look, we're just not getting the vaccines. And, and there's, there's a legitimate criticism there. I mean, let's face it, the procurement was not what we expected it to be, and it did leave a lot of the areas of the country short. But in a situation like that, though, doctor, is it not uh, incumbent upon the government, and I'm talking about the provincial governments who were, you know, were in charge of making sure the vaccines get out there, to be strategic in where they, they actually move these vaccines i mean I, instead i understand their initial program was going to be this is going to be based, based on age demographics uh and we're working down that list but now we're finding out for instance is as you mentioned now these variants are affecting younger people they're not getting vaccinated uh frontline workers weren't getting vaccinated teachers weren't getting vaccinated it's great that they've changed their attitude toward this and they're going out into the community right now but again is that a strategy that we should have employed a long time ago Oh, Bill, you're hitting it right on the head every time here. My goodness. Yeah, in, initially, we put most of the emphasis on, on, uh, on the second of the, uh, of the most needy group. In other words, it was the receivers, you know, the people mm-hmm. who were most likely to die if they become infected. And so, you know, a year ago, it was the people in long-term care. I, by all means, pull out all the stops, just get them vaccinated. Sure. And less, less effect on the, what I would call the transmitters, the potential transmitters. Now, we've got uh, the long-term care people pretty much on under control to some degree. But we now need to be asking who's able to pass it on. If they become infected, they can now pass it on to four, six, 14, 23 other people. These are the transmitters, and that's where we begin to say, look, let's forget about the age necessarily. Let's look, see what they do, how much contact they have. For example, public-facing officials of any kind, whether they're in the long-term care, whether they're in the homes, uh, uh, residences, jails, uh, food packing plants, working with other colleagues, these should be at the top of their list. It's education workers, and I'm glad to see. That's one really nice thing. Maybe there's some pressure there that seems to work. Educational workers now in high-risk areas are all likely to vaccinate, regardless of age. Uh, asymptomatic testing. I've got right here, for example, an analysis I did uh, of the asymptomatic program in schools. Right? It, this, isn't, this isn't the kids that are ill. And uh, at the, in both these things here, both these, the, the last week and the week before, Hamilton Wentworth are very, very close to the top of the list in terms of sharp increases in the detection of, of uh, virus-positive kids who have no symptoms at all. Now, that's a red flag for me. And for most epi, epi people are going to say this is an indication it's moving around. Uh, I, I didn't see any specific indication about asymptomatic testing. I believe the program will be increasing, but I'm not sure whether they're going to be using the results. Yeah, the uh, the story we're hearing here in the Hamilton area, of course, is that uh, these kids probably are not going back to school after their uh, their break coming up in just a couple of days now. Yeah. Uh, that they're probably going to keep them out of there, and it's it's because of statistics like that. Uh, but we're reacting after the fact, and I guess that's what bothers me is you know did the numbers have to get this high? Uh, and I'll give you an example. Of course, these talked about the big box stores yesterday and said, you know what, we're going to restrict the the usage in there. I mean, you, you're not going to go there and buy jeans anymore. You can buy groceries. S- five months ago, when when the science panel suggested that he says that's logistically you can't do that well now we can i mean if if we'd understood the urgency back then maybe this wouldn't have happened maybe you wouldn't see these high case numbers oh absolutely yeah this wasn't well thought through now, you know let's, let's face it we had not seen a crisis like this within living memory and so everybody's going to make a little bit of a fumble and a foul up once in a while but with the advice coming in pretty consistently from the people who are doing this kind of analysis you know, we'd have thought it would have been, uh, been more ready, ready responsing there. We also need to ask questions, Bill. For example, uh, the federal government purchased 37 million rapid tests some months ago, and as far as I know, most of them have been sitting in warehouses. We've used a few of these, apparently, uh, but where's the others? This is a time more than ever before. I mean, even with influenza, you can, somebody's ill, you can see they're ill. With this virus, you've got at least 50% of the people who have the virus in them, and are probably infecting others without any signs or symptoms at all. So we should be pulling out all the stops with testing. The official argument is, well, the tests aren't that accurate. 
Yeah, but if you retest the person a second time within a week, you've got a screening mechanism that's just about the same as a PCR test, the, the gold standard one. So we should be using these for all of these, uh, these public interface positions, you know, schools, airline attendants, hairdressers, anyone having as a condition of their employment, they get tested at least once a week, Monday morning. That's, if you don't get tested, you don't come to work. Now, what a great way to get people back to work on airlines, too, if you can do that. Well, that's the same test I understand because I've heard the same criticisms, uh, Doctor. They say, well, it's it's not 100% effective. First of all, nothing is. And, and part B, this is the same test, for instance, that professional sports leagues, the NBA, Major League Baseball, and the NHL are using, uh, and it's good enough for them. And, oh, yes, every now and then somebody slips through the cracks. We get that. But you get a pretty good idea that of, of where people are in a situation like that. And and we've heard these horror stories about uh, Canada Post depots and, and some of the warehousing factories in Peel Region, just north of Toronto, uh, and, and the outbreaks that are happening in those places why aren't those things at the front door every time a shift begins to make sure that everybody's going to be at least uh safe for the, for that shift anyway we've been asking that same question since about july last year and there's no question at all britain has, has gone into virtually a country-wide program like that mm -hmm. it is a city-wide program the city of southampton a few months ago just as what it does it gives you a really good idea where the virus is moving around and by repeating the same thing, as I said, the same person. You get this really good screening then. Uh, and, and one of the things that uh, Justice Campbell said for SARS-1, he said uh, one of the biggest mistakes that Ontario made back then was waiting until whatever procedure was uh, suggested, waiting until it's 100% effective. And you just said it yourself. No procedure, whether that's a test, a screening, a vaccine, whatever it is, nothing is 100%. So what you do, you layer it up. It's the Swiss cheese approach. You know, the more you layer on top, you get a really tight screen. And that seems to be missed by a lot of the... Uh, policymakers. I want to talk about the vaccines, and, and which is right into your wheelhouse, Doctor, about what's going to be happening here. And uh, the, the numbers are starting to get better, and you're right. That's, uh, that is great news. That the fact that they're going to be going out into communities, uh, you know, they should have done it a long time ago, but they're doing it now. And I guess, you know, I, I hate to say better late than never because it sounds so trite, but I mean, at least they're getting into this right now. Uh, but I, the warning, and I heard the President, uh, President Biden mention this yesterday as he was addressing the nation about that, and they're doing swimmingly well with theirs. They, he wanted to get a 100 million vaccines in his first 100 days it looks like it's going to be 200 million which is fabulous but he's warning the population that doesn't mean we've won this thing yet uh do you think that there's a, a false sense of, of confidence here that you know as soon as i get vaccinated i'm bulletproof and i don't have to worry about all this other stuff yeah, Bill, both in the micro and the macro sense, you've, you've, yeah. you've described it very well. Uh, to begin with, the people themselves, you, you, you know, you, you see the, 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 the needle comes out the arm and the reporter saying, what are you going to do now? And they say, first thing I'm going to do is go home and hug my family. It goes wrong. It's going to take at least uh, 14 to 20 days to build up enough antibodies to be reasonably a bit more protected than you were before. It's far too soon. But even on a larger scale, too, uh, this is sort of good news in a little bit. The projection yesterday was that in four weeks they should have 40% of Ontario's uh, population vaccinated. The good thing is, I've just done a little calculation, it is possible. We, we're at about 15, we're at about 16% at the moment who've had at least one shot. So to reach 40%, we need another uh, roughly 24%. Uh, That's about 3.6 million and that works out at about 128,000 a day. Well, we have been reaching about 100,000 a day, mm -hmm. so it is possible if we ramp that up a bit, we could get. It's possible to get that done, but that will be 40% of the population. Remember, we've got to reach about 75% of the population before we can be sure that about 70% are immune, which is what we're going to need for herd immunity. And that is with the present uh, variants. If they become any worse or new variants come along, it may be worse than that. And the latest survey we saw, you may have seen that yourself, uh, I think is something like 75% of people saying, yes, I would be willing to get the vaccine. Well, that doesn't leave any margin of error. And if that slips back a bit, we're not going to reach herd immunity. So we may go into a kind of a, a recycling endemic of this thing. I want to see it finished, but uh, it's probably going to go into an endemic uh, uh, system, yeah. What about, and again, to the dissemination of the vaccine? It's great that they're doing these community things and they're going to, you know, outreach in some churches or you know, religious places and everything in certain neighborhoods. Uh, I was 
kind of disturbed to find out that the neighborhood I've been working out of here for the last year is also on the, the hit list with the, the medical officer felt here as one of the, the hot spots. Uh, it hasn't been added to the list by the province, but she wants it to be added to the list. Uh, but with that happening, that's great. But I mean, ultimately, what I'm hearing from an awful lot of people, doctor, is why can't my family physician do this? Why can't I go to the pharmacy like, like we used to do? And I know they're starting to do that, but I mean, you know, it was much easier for people, for instance, to get their flu shots. Uh, we didn't have them lining up in, in these big centers and everything. It's inconvenient and a little intimidating for a lot of people. Oh, especially uh, for the for the elderly too. I yeah. mean, some of them don't have a car; they've got to rely on a neighbor. They've got to haul themselves right across the city to some place and line up outside. Yeah, we yet they're familiar with going to the local pharmacy on the corner or to their own GP, and uh, that's something that uh, yeah. So of course that should be they shouldn't be uh, kept as a enclave of uh, of official centers. We need to get. Do the mass centers by all means for the people who can get there. I mean, the Ryerson, for example, has took to think it's a anatomy center. You remember the old gardens, the uh, yeah. maple leaf gardens? They're, they've offered that as a center for people living in condos downtown. They don't have a car. It's a great That's idea, right around great. the corner from the campus there. Exactly, yeah. But, I mean, for other people who live, you know, some 80-year-old person who can just uh, struggle out with a walker, why wouldn't you let her go to the, her GP on one corner or the pharmacist on the other corner? It was uh, polio, if you remember. Long, you don't remember. You're far too young. But oh, yes, I do. I've rolled up. And, up for their, all the, yeah, all the way down the hall at school, sure. Yeah, their sugar cube with a dot of stuff on top. But, but even fire halls were used for that, you know, on the, yeah. just on the junction. Yep. Uh, great ideas. Uh, always great to get your perspective on this because, uh, you know, every time we get these political announcements, there's probably more questions than there are answers to these things. But it's always great that we can count on you to give us uh, some perspective on this. Doctor, as always, thank you so much. Thank you, Bill. Stay safe. You too. Dr. Timothy Sly, of course, uh, epidemiologist and professor emeritus uh, at uh, Ryerson University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. This is the lockdown part three, of course. Uh, like a bad movie sequel, I guess, that we're going to have to go through this again. And uh, a lot of communities are, are scrambling to try to figure out just what they're going to do to try to offer support. Hamilton's decision makers are offering some verbal support for the latest stay-at-home orders. Emergency Operations Center uh, Director Paul Johnson acknowledges that the frustration is there for certain sectors. Obviously, you know, going to be a tough day again for certain parts of our community and the business community as well. And, and I understand people's frustration with this uh, you know, more severe restrictions, less severe uh, restrictions, and, and what seems to be this ever-changing landscape. But the reality is it's a response to what's going on in our communities. Is it the right response, and what kind of an impact is it going to have? A lot of questions, as we mentioned uh, after the announcement yesterday. Joining us to talk about that is Jasmine Gwinnett, who is the Vice President of National Affairs for the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses. And Jasmine, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, let me ask you about your perspective on this. Uh, we've, we've talked to a number of people in your organization uh, over the last number of weeks about you know what the government is doing and the impact it's having on small business. And I know even yesterday uh, the premier said, look, I know this is going to be tough, but he says, I promise we'll continue to have your backs. Uh, do they have the backs of small businesses here? <laughs> uh, that uh, third uh, lockdown uh, will be uh, devastating for many small businesses. Um, what we are saying is that lockdown should not be the only uh, policy put in place um, uh, to put in place by uh, by the Ontario government, and uh, you know the, the size, the scope, and the length of this uh, uh, new lockdown uh, will be um, will be uh, devastating for many small businesses. Uh, many of them who already fought hard to survive the first lockdown. Many of them who fought really hard to survive the second uh, wave and the second lockdown. Now this uh, third lockdown uh, could be uh, could be the uh, one too many for uh, unfortunately many uh, small businesses. Well, I heard that from a friend of mine who's in small business here in the Hamilton area yesterday. He said, "This is like strike three and you're out. Uh, this is the third yeah. lockdown." He says, "I don't know how many of us are going to survive this one." And I'm sure you're hearing a lot of that from your members. Absolutely. Um, before, before this uh, new uh, lockdown, one in six uh, businesses were at risk of closing because of uh, COVID-19. And uh, um, in Ontario alone, that's 75,000 businesses. That's, uh, that's close to 900,000 jobs. And uh, we need to do something else. The government need to do something else. 
if we want to make sure that small businesses can survive and if we need uh, and if we want to make sure that people have a job to go back to uh, after all this uh, is behind us I want to talk, just so listeners have an understanding of the impact this is having. And it's not just, okay, the doors are locked and we'll let you know when you can open them again. Uh, because, you know, we this is just a total reversal of what the Premier announced just a couple of weeks ago, uh, where he was allowing, uh, you know, patio dining, allowing people into restaurants, allowing these businesses to open up again. Uh, and and as as you know, of course, uh, with, the, with your work with the Federation of Independent Businesses, Jasmine, uh, that means they're going to buy stock. They have to get things. They have to buy food, of course, if it's a restaurant, an eating establishment. Uh, they they have to get stock for their stores if it's a small business. Uh, what what do they do with this stuff? All of a sudden, they're told you can't open today, uh, and they were given basically 24 hours notice on this. It, it's not just that they're not going to make money; it's just that they've already invested money in a lot of this stuff, and now they don't know what's going to happen with it. Yeah, um, you know, it's just a it's just a couple of hours' notice, right? And so yeah. you have little time to first, you have little time to talk to your employees. You know, you need to let the people that uh, that works for you that you know the, the new measures are in place and how it will impact uh them uh, you need to talk to your suppliers uh make sure that uh, everything is in order uh, with them as well and you're right many businesses have, have bought inventories and 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 many of them will lose that inventory so uh <laughs> it's it's not only that not only the doors are closed, but you are uh, stuck with all these uh, 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 inventory supplies, and um, and the government announced uh, the new lockdown, this forced lockdown, without any any new financial support. So 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 it's 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 really unfortunate that. The same government that is pushing many of those businesses to the verge of bankruptcy announced a new lockdown uh, just a couple of hours notice without any new financial support. Uh, uh, And uh, businesses um, uh, already struggling with cash flow uh, uh, are just going to be in a more difficult situation um, as of uh, this morning. And for the next four weeks, I guess one of the other things that, that bothers an awful lot of the small businesses I've talked to, and this has been going on, as you say, for the third wave now, uh, is is where's the justification for this? I mean, even yesterday, I know the premier was going on and said, you know, Easter weekend, he said all these people going to the malls. What do you people do and go to the malls? Well, they're there, Mr. Premier, because you said they could. I mean, he left the malls open. And, and, and of course people are going to gravitate to that because they want to get out and do some shopping. Uh, and, you know, by all means, we were told that, you know, all the quotas that they were supposed to do in those malls were being maintained. Uh, but he's, he's chastising people for following the rules that he set up two weeks ago. Uh, but the problem I hear all the time is, show us that the stores and that retail is where the spread is coming from. And they have yet to do that. They're just saying, okay, everything's going to be shut down. But we don't even know if this is going to be effective because we don't know. There's no data that shows that going into that small businesses in in whatever city or town you're in is actually contributing to the spread. Yeah, well, I'm going to quote you on that. You're absolutely right. Uh, There's no data that suggests that... uh, Spread is happening through small businesses, and yet the government continues to shut them down. And that's why, you know, it's important that the government uh, move from lockdown uh, uh, only policy to to other measures, such as using uh, rapid testing, uh, using tracing, um, uh, uh, increasing vaccination on 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 the workplace. Uh, yesterday. The government announced that they are retargeting some of the vaccination priorities, but still, you know, uh, uh, most COVID outbreaks, not not most, but many COVID outbreaks happen in large workplaces, and yet the government still put small businesses on the sideline, uh, pushing more and more people uh, uh, to, to buy from larger online uh, stores such as Amazon uh, to the disadvantage of, uh, of our small uh, business uh, community uh, here uh, in the province. 
when we hear of these stories, and, and I've talked to a number of the people in small businesses. Well, I, have, I had a discussion last week with the, uh, one of the, the CEOs of the, of the fitness industry here in Ontario. Mm. Uh, and gyms are closed again, by the way, for people that didn't know that. Uh, and they said, look, at, <laughs> said, do you understand the precautions we already take? Even before the pandemic, you know, everybody had to wipe down every piece of equipment before and after they used it. You know, those cleaners were there. Anybody that's been to a gym knows that. And we said, we've increased that. We've done the separation, the physical distancing, the mask wearing in the gym. Show me. And I know there was a horrendous outbreak in, in Hamilton, of course, at one of those spin centers last year during the first wave of the pandemic. But we haven't heard many stories, if any, uh, in that particular facility and those kinds of facilities since then because they've taken precautions, as restaurants have, as other places have. Yet they just throw a blanket over everybody, Jasmine, and say, okay, you guys are shut. That's it. Yeah. And uh, gyms have been uh, locked down for 299 days in Ontario since uh, the pandemic began. Um, this is uh, unacceptable. Indoor restaurant dining has been uh, locked down for uh, 300 days uh, uh, since the pandemic began. Um, and uh, uh, the, um, the small business community uh, want the government to consider uh, other uh, measures. 80% of our members say that the government need to be more creative. And so we ask uh, the Ontario government to keep a minimum of 20% capacity limit uh, in all uh, small businesses, whether it's gym or retail. Uh, it's important to increase, as I said, the use of rapid testing um two a third of small business would want to consider using those rapid tests uh, if it means to for them to if it means to 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 stay open and so uh, a lot of small businesses uh, feel like they are the scapegoat uh, of this pandemic and uh, uh, i'm afraid that thousands of thousands will not survive this uh, third lockdown well, I get frustrated because I just wonder if the people that are making the decisions in these boardrooms at Queen's Park actually understand what's going on on the streets. I'll give you an example. This past weekend, uh, I went to our, our favorite fish store, and uh, it's all fresh fish, and as a matter of fact, we supply a number of restaurants and, and a little place that, that we know of. Uh, and this is before the lockdown was even announced. Uh, they had to sign up, limit of two customers in the store at once, only two people in the city. You had to wait outside if there were more than two people or two people in there. Had to wear masks, so hygiene, they've got the plexiglass, mass of things up there uh and the business was doing fine i mean people were waiting because they liked the product uh and they were doing fine now as of today those doors are shut they've got a whole big back room full of fresh fish because that's what they specialize in i, I guess it's going to go bad i guess they have to throw it in the dumpster uh they don't know what they're going to do with this in a situation like this now and they were complying and they're not part of the problem yet they're one of these businesses that have been told to shut their doors until further notice in the vast majority of businesses the vast vast majority of small businesses comply yeah and they 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 want to make sure that they want to make sure that first their 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 business is safe for them and for their employees and they want to make sure that their business is safe for all their customers uh you visit any small businesses since the beginning of the pandemic and they have put in place uh, measures to make sure that it's safe to visit them. My own local gym, uh, when it was open, uh, you know, you, you train wearing the mask, you clean your equipment uh, before and after, uh, and, and they monitor you. They want to make sure that you, uh, you do uh, your part. Uh, and, and yet, <laughs> yesterday... Doc Ford said, you guys uh, invested in, in, in equipment. You guys invested in inventories. You follow the rule. Uh, yet the rule of the game uh, the, the changed, and the government locked down all small businesses, uh, non-essential small businesses, yet again. Um, uh, you know, it's... The government cannot create a bigger monster than we already have with COVID. It's important that people can continue to make a living uh, of a job uh, and run their business uh, in, in 
in in in making sure that 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 social distancing and other measures are respected, but businesses uh, and business owners need to make sure that they can continue to earn a, a, a living uh, and and survive this uh, now uh, twelve months uh, long pandemic. It's it's the blanket coverage I think that bothers an awful lot of people because I, as you mentioned, Jasmine, we know where, who the, who the offenders are. We know where some of the hotspots are. They're they're they're, they're the you know the the large retail centers, the 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 the, the factories, of course, and and the you know the, the places like the cargo centers that are going on. And and where's the rapid testing in those facilities? Well, it's, it's non-existent for all intents and purposes. And you've got restaurants and businesses that are complying; they're being punished for this at the same time. It it just it, it boggles the imagination. I mean, you know, we we have, as you know, here in Ontario, we have uh, you know restaurant grading. I mean, you know, they have inspectors that go in there and pass, and they check out about the hygiene and the food quality and everything. And if you get a pass, a green, you can go in there. Once in a while, they get a bad restaurant and they get a failing grade, and they have to shut the doors. They don't close every restaurant in the city; they close that one because that's that's the one that's in non-compliance why aren't we doing something like that when it comes to businesses yeah and that's why we are asking you know to increase the use of rapid testing and tracing and, and making sure that uh, we target uh, we have a target uh, targeted approach we target communities and business sectors that are facing you know the largest outbreaks uh, and we uh, uh, focus the vaccination on those uh, uh, communities and business uh, sectors. Now, to be fair, yesterday, uh, Doug Ford said that they would retarget uh, the um, vaccination so that uh, some essential workers, you know, in, uh, in some sectors like manufacturing and, and, and others, would be able to get vaccinated uh, as soon as as possible, but uh, um, this is really this is what what is needed is a change in strategy. Instead of using the blanket lockdowns, shutting down everybody, uh, let's make sure that we have a targeted approach where where we see outbreaks, we do what is necessary, and where it's 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 going well without uh, much uh, outbreaks. We uh, keep businesses uh, open. And as we said a few times already, uh, our outbreaks are not happening uh, for the vast majority in, in the small business uh, community. It is in large uh, workplace. And so we, uh, we need to make sure that and we need to tell loud and clear to the government that uh, 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 the strategy has to change and small businesses must remain open uh, uh, while, you know, safely uh, serving uh, their uh, clientele. Exactly, and, and your point's well taken. I mean, you know, we, we've heard some stories about, for instance, the, the Canada Post depots. Well, now with this mm. new strategy that he announced, and I agree, it's a good move. You know, say, okay, next Wednesday and Thursday, we're going to be at that Canada Post depot giving vaccinations. Anybody that wants it uh, can roll up their sleeve and get it. That's a great idea. But that's addressing the problem where the problem exists instead of just saying, okay, everybody's going to suffer because of these, these hot spot areas. Uh, and, and I'm hoping this is phase one of, of a more practical approach to this because I'm concerned, and I know you are for your members at this point, Jasmine, uh, you know, whether or not they're going to be open, able to open their doors in four weeks or five weeks or whatever the case might be. The numbers are staggering about the number of people that are just walking away and saying, I can't do this anymore. And it's going to be, a, I think, a real shock to an awful lot of people when we finally do come out of this at the other side uh, to find out how many of those stores along these little main streets and all their towns and cities in this country are, are going to remain shut. And, and we, we've, we went through those horrific times with downtown cores before. I don't want to see it happen again. No, we don't. And it's not only the number of businesses at risk. Uh, as I said, you know, it's one in six businesses that uh, is at risk of closing because of COVID. Um, but it's also those who, just to remain open, uh, had to contract a new debt uh, just to keep the lights open. Uh, that's $200,000 of uh, COVID-related debt that businesses had to take just to keep the lights uh, open, just to pay some of the bills. Um, and um, uh, it's, it's, 
70 percent, 70, well, in fact, it's 73 percent of, uh, of, uh, of all small businesses that had to take on debt to survive uh, the pandemic up to now. And so the longer we have lockdowns like the one we have now here in Ontario, uh, the bigger that debt will become and the more businesses uh, will uh, not be uh, able to uh, to make it. And so it's really important that uh, government, as I said uh, already many times, change its strategy uh, and uh, and ensure that uh, that most small businesses can uh, survive. Uh, it's uh, it's it's it, we 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 hear it so many times, but I think it's because it's true, but small businesses, is the backbone of our economy, and we have to make sure that uh, they uh, can make it through. Well, uh, I couldn't have said it better. Uh, we'll leave it on that note there. We're just about out of time. But uh, keep doing what you're doing, and we'll keep telling these stories as well. Uh, Jasmine, thank you so much for the time today. Thank you so much for having us. Take care. Jasmine Gwinnett, of course, the Vice President of National Affairs with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. More testimony expected today on day nine of the trial of a former Minneapolis police officer, Derek Chauvin, who was charged in the death of George Floyd. Mark Revelard brings us up to date. Prosecution has moved out of testimony regarding Minneapolis Police Department policy and training and whether Derek Chauvin violated those when he kneeled on George Floyd's neck for more than nine minutes and into evidence that was found in Floyd's car, as well as the police squad car that officers attempted to put Floyd in before he was pinned to the ground. Jurors heard testimony yesterday that drugs were found in the vehicles that contained saliva from Floyd, and those drugs included fentanyl and methamphetamine. Mark Remillard, ABC News. Oh, let's uh, try to get some context as to what's going on. And uh, so pleased uh, to welcome to the program Andrew Fergielli, who is a lecturer of the Faculty of Law at uh, the University of Toronto, to uh, shed some light on this. Andrew, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us today. My pleasure, Bill. Good to be here. A lot of contradictory testimony yesterday. Uh, you know, uh, you know what was George Floyd saying when they were trying to put him into the police cruiser, and, and uh, you know, getting different opinions on that, uh, and and a lot of testimony about what we saw. And I know Andrew at the outset of this, I think everybody was saying, "Well, this is a slam dunk. This is a no-brainer. We all saw the video. We all saw what happened." Uh, the defense is taking a much different tack, though, and suggesting that look, at uh, there were complicating medical conditions that are at play here. Are, are they getting any traction with that? Uh, well, it's hard to say right now. Um, I mean, they're running the, this two-pronged defense in the face of this very powerful video. Right? They've got sort of two ways they're going with the defense. One is that the use of force was reasonable given potential officer safety concerns. And the second is that, um, as you said, there are these medical issues related uh, in large part due to drug use that may have uh, uh, led to his death as opposed to the nine-minute kneeling on the neck. Are they getting traction? I don't know that they are. Um, there was uh, uh, some sense that at least one of the jurors was falling asleep yesterday, um, and it's going to be a tough road ahead for them to run this defense, but um, it may be the best that they've got. On that point, though, there's uh, I've been going through all this coverage over the last couple of days now, Andrew, trying to uh, get some some ideas about exactly why they're doing this. And it was fascinating to see that this was the tact that defense is, seems to be hanging their head on, although there's, there's going to be more testimony. We know that. But if, if, in fact, there's some legitimacy to their claim that, well, these there were underlying conditions that actually led to his death, it wasn't necessarily the, the, the knee on the neck, it was these other things. Uh, I, I, I wish to assume then that George Floyd was almost ready to die anyway because of this blockage in one artery and because of the drug use. Uh, I mean, the fact of the matter is, is with the, the knee on the neck was a contributing factor. I mean, there may have been underlying conditions, but I mean, if they couldn't breathe because there was a, there, if there was no knee on the neck, would George Floyd be still with us? Exactly, and that's why it's such a hard road for the defense to travel on with this uh, with this tactic. You know, the the test for causation. It's important to keep that in mind. Uh, it's that the action, the assault, has to be a significant contributing factor to the death. Um, and based on what we've heard so far, it's very hard to say that whether there was going to be a knee on the neck or not, this man was going to die. A lot of that, quite frankly. I think for a lot of your listeners is going to fly in the face of common sense. Yeah. Um, you know, the knee on the neck, 
nine minutes and and the man dies it's going to be very hard for the prosecution or for the defense excuse me uh, to say at the end of that 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 didn't play a significant contributing factor and we come back though to what else do they have to run in the face of that video yeah because I'm, I'm trying to think of examples here and i mean it's i mean if somebody's driving down the road and they, they hit and, and sadly kill somebody and they say well look at the guy had a terminal disease anyway you're still charged with vehicular yeah. homicide or something i mean they say oh well you know it was inevitable no it's not in situations like that so I'm, i was really interested to see that this is what they've done uh, to try to, to to complicate matters here to try to put this in here uh and and i i, I agree with you i mean it's, the testimony that i've watched and the, the coverage that i've watched over the last little while uh, I don't know uh, that, 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 you know, with that sort of a technicality, uh, that they're going to convince the jurors. I, I think, as you mentioned, this is the second day now that uh, the, there's only two reporters allowed in the, in the, in the court, of course, uh, one video uh, and, and one doing digital. Uh, and they said both times people, the juries are falling asleep on this. So uh, it's, it's not captivating evidence, is it? No, uh, it, it's a very technical evidence. I mean, here, you're, yesterday was a good example of, of how trials can really, I, I hate to use the word, get bogged down, but they, they sort of do um, in, in a lot of technical evidence. Yesterday, you had a lot of evidence about uh, uh, drug usage and uh, what, what George Floyd was saying on the video, and then a lot of technical evidence on use of force policies. And the, the, the problem for the defense, and I suppose for the trial as a whole, is that that comes in the aftermath of incredibly gripping evidence in the video and then the civilians that were there as well. I mean, that's going to keep everybody's attention. Coming in the shadow of that, this evidence is going to be more of a slog. And, and that video, obviously, is, is what you know the, the prosecution is going to hang their head on, and they seem to be obviously working on that. Uh, you can bring up Eight, ten different experts about you know force use of force in situations like this, Andrew. But uh, you know, and nine of them could be from the defense, and nine could be from the prosecution team on this. I mean, uh, it's I understand that there are standards that, and this is what they keep telling us about. But uh, it's it's to a certain extent in the eye of the beholder. And I guess the defense argument here is, well, you weren't there, you don't understand the threat that these officers felt that they were in, uh, and and they suggest that was a mitigating factor. Yeah, so the officer safety component to this is is um, is, a, is a frequent defense in these sorts of cases, which is the idea that police officers are constantly dealing with unpredictable situations and people are unpredictable. And you started to see that with the Floyd defense team here. The questioning of, you know, you had Floyd at one point somewhat resisting the arrest before getting into the cruiser um, at the front end before the nine minutes. Uh, and, and the defense arguing, well, given that, you had a, per, a person who was unpredictable and could at any time have become uh, uh, difficult or, or an officer safety threat. Um, the problem the defense is going to have with that, no matter how many experts, as you say, you're lining up on either side, is, is the length of time that the man is compliant and then not moving in the video. And we keep coming back to the video, Bill, um, and there's a reason for that. It's, it's as powerful a piece of evidence um, as, as can be put into play into a courtroom. Uh, and at the end of the day, as you say, the jury's going to make what they, what they will of it. Interesting uh, section yesterday. Uh, they played the video of, of the officers actually trying to put him into the vehicle uh, before they actually went to put him down on the ground. Uh, and, and Floyd was resisting. Uh, and it's very, well, there's a, there's a, a a piece of tape that they played time and time again. Uh, they got two different interpretations. Uh, the defense are saying uh, that he says, uh, you know, that I, I, I ain't doing no drugs. Uh, the prosecution are saying that I took too many drugs. I ate too many drugs. Uh, I watched it probably five or six times last night. I couldn't make it out. Is is when something like that is presented, uh, and again. Uh, it, it, I guess it depends on how you approach this and how many times you say this, because there's one incident here uh, where one of the eyewitnesses said at first agreed with the with the defense and then changed his mind after listening to it two or three more times and said, no, I think he, I, this is actually what he said. Uh, so how solid a, a piece of evidence is that if, it, if it's that valuable that it, it really depends on who you ask at the time? 
Yeah, and it, it may seem odd at first to hear that a witness did that, saying on the stand, saying, you know, now that I'm listening to it a few more times, I'm actually going to change my evidence. That happens when you have audio that's not clear, and the, but the law on it is clear. It's for the jury to decide what's said. The jury can go back and say, we agree with the prosecution, and what he said was, uh, I ain't done no drugs. We agree with the defense uh, and their interpretation, or we just can't make it out and determine based on not being able to make out what's said, uh, what to do with the charges uh, uh, anyway. So it's for them to decide at the end, each side is going to urge interpretations on for them. Um, the impact of it at the end of the day, it remains to be seen. There was one piece that was audible, and that was, uh, and again, because the officers are maintaining that, that Floyd was resisting arrest and would not go into the into the police vehicle. Uh, but it's pretty clear you can hear him saying, "I don't want to get COVID again." He did have COVID, as, as we found out later on, yeah. and he and he says, "I'm claustrophobic. I, I can't get in there." Uh, are, are those mitigating factors to suggest that maybe he wasn't resisting? Maybe he was just concerned about his own health. I think a lot of jurors, uh, there's a strong chance they're going to take it this way. Um, I, I think when you have a classic um, sort of resisting of arrest, um, uh, you don't have sort of these cogent uh, factors that an individual puts out in the heat of the moment that's captured, uh, which is one of the really striking things now about the proliferation of uh, police body cameras and cell phone cameras from people uh, 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 filming. You have this idea of a, of a resisting arrest being a very violent uh, action and a violent set of events. And here you have an individual um, who is resisting, who's not wanting to get into the vehicle, but is putting out these rationales for it that, that I would think for the at least some of the jurors um, would hold some sway. Another piece of evidence, and I, I, I got to get your your perspective on this for somebody for the courtroom experience that you've had to, to look at this, uh, is evidence, and and this is always going to be a controversial thing, of course. Uh, apparently, initial search of the of the police car that that, that Floyd was in uh, found nothing in the way of, of of narcotics or drugs or anything like this. A second search weeks later, uh, all of a sudden they came up with a drug that they said had his DNA on it. Uh, does that raise a red flag for you? Well, as, as defense counsel, which which I've been now for several years, uh, in addition to my work with the law school, uh, absolutely it would, and and that's totally fair game for the defense to to bring out. It's it's surprising to say the least that those drugs weren't found, and the defense theory um, it depends in large part on drug use uh, uh, by uh, by George Floyd for both strands of their defense. Um, so it's totally fair game for them to go after. Um, it's surprising and unfortunate it was missed. Um, it happens. Uh, but uh, uh, again, the impact here uh, would be met, has to be measured against that video. If you don't have that video, this is the sort of um, piece of evidence that might be able to get you somewhere farther as defense counsel. You know, like when you don't have the video of the actual event taking place, um, and there's a void there, then these drugs become could become very significant. In the face of the video, um, their uh, ability to move the chain, so to speak, for the defense may be a little bit tougher. And in, and in a similar vein, uh, there was the actions of, of Shelvin himself. Uh, there were eyewitnesses, uh, one who was trained, I guess, as a first responder that tried to intercede, and he would not let them be part of that. Uh, we've seen even on the video, of course, the number of people that were saying, you're killing him, you're killing him, stop. And uh, and he seemed to make them angry, uh, from what we saw in the video anyway. Uh, how does a jury perceive something like that? that was, does that go to intent, to his mindset at the time? Absolutely. For me, that's the most... If I was defense counsel on this, that's actually um, uh, tied up with the video is the most difficult thing to get around. You've got average citizens there, uh, on the one hand, um, who are watching this in real time, um, who are begging the officer to stop, who are telling the officer, look, it looks to me like you're killing him. And that, with the length of time, is powerful because those jurors are everyday citizens. Those that could have been those jurors standing there imploring the officers to do the, the officer to do the same thing to stop. And then on the other hand, you've got someone with uh, maybe not his commensurate level of training, but somebody who's seen this sort of thing before, who does understand uh, uh, use of force and and has some understanding of that beyond the layperson, 
and that person is trying to intercede and get them to stop. So those are, are very powerful buttressing pieces of evidence in addition to the video. They, they, they put the, the video in a context of what people were feeling there at the time live. And, of course, the other side of that argument that we also saw yesterday was, as you mentioned, it's it's the perceived threat by the officers themselves. Uh, and, and one of the use of force experts that was uh, testifying yesterday, of course, mentioned that uh, uh, as soon as the resistance stops, in other words, if he's you know not moving anymore and, and simply being compliant, uh, you're supposed to let up. And, and apparently, obviously, in this case, the, the, the video seems to indicate that Chauvin did not let up in situations like that. Uh, so there's strong arguments on both sides here. I, I, the ultimate question, I guess, though, Andrew, is uh, given the severity of the charges here and the implications here, uh, there's the burden of proof here and the old idea about, okay, at the same time, if there's reasonable doubt, uh, is there reasonable doubt being created by the case the defense is putting out so far? Uh, well, so that has to be measured in the context of the fact that there's several different charges here. There's three different charges with different levels of intent there. That means three different routes of conviction uh, for the prosecution. And uh, at least on some of the lesser charges, you have to think that the um, uh, that the defense is not uh, at this point creating that reasonable doubt. Um, and, you know, a good parallel on that point would be, as you'll well remember, Bill, the Sammy Yatim, uh, yeah. James Forsillo case, yes. where you had multiple uh, routes to conviction, and, and the defense was able to raise a reasonable doubt on the murder charge, that at that moment when he shot, there was some reasonable doubt that he didn't have the intent to kill or uh, that, uh, that, uh, that James Forsillo um, uh, was acting reasonably in the course of his duty but not for the attempted murder charge after the initial volley of shots. Here, they may, the, the defense may be able to get some jurors to find a reasonable doubt uh, on the second-degree murder charge, but on the lower charges where the standard of intent is lower, um, I don't know that they're getting there yet. It's, it's still early in the trial, but it's a really hard road for them to go on to get a full acquittal here. Andrew, quick point, uh, because I saw a lot of comments about this on social media from people that were following uh, the activities in the courtroom yesterday as well. Uh, there were moments when, when the judge and the lawyers actually put headphones on uh, and seemed oblivious to what was going on in the courtroom, and they're wondering, hey, what's going on here? You know, is, who's talking about what and what are they saying here? Uh, my initial explanation that I heard from somebody with legal expertise said that's just a sidebar it's just that because this is a you know a covid trial it's just being done differently is, it, is yeah. that your read on it too yeah uh, so american law here is different than canadian law uh, in canadian law your objections are done out loud in open court there is no sidebar there is no private discussion between counsel and the judge um, so courtroom observers can hear uh, if there's an objection to a question or if there's a legal issue to be litigated, everybody in the courtroom can hear it. Uh, in America, it's different. Uh, the lawyers would generally walk up to the judge and in lower voices um, make their pitches, and then the judge would make a ruling, and courtroom observers wouldn't get the chance to hear that. Given COVID, you don't want people standing too close together, so they're just doing it uh, uh, through headphones and microphones. Lots of stuff going on here, and, and boy, it's, it's great to have a perspective from somebody who spent some time in the courtroom and knows exactly uh, what happens and, and give us some perspective on this, because it's, it's a very important trial, and the ramifications, of course, will be significant for some time to come. Andrew, thank you so much for this today. I really do appreciate it. Uh, stay well, and hopefully we'll talk again soon. You as well. Anytime, Bill. Good to be here. Appreciate it. Andrew Frugelli, of course, a lecturer, uh, faculty of law, and, of course, defense attorney um, for many, many years, of course, uh, here in the southern Ontario area. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.